You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great. Thank you very much, Toby. It's great to hear about the meetups. I'm sure, like me, you're really excited this morning. We've got four people getting baptized. I know many are here to cheer them on. Some people I know will be watching on YouTube. Uh, we've got Mark, who I've always called Paul, but we're calling Mark today because that's his name. We've got Tamsin, and we've got Vanessa, and we've got Kayla. It is brilliant. Come on, let's cheer them on as we're going to be in baptisms this morning. I don't want to make you more nervous than you already are, but we'll do the best we can. I think it's exciting days, don't you? Exciting days, exciting days, because there are 11 days until we vote for a new Mayor of London. Oh, yeah, he's excited about that. Come on. Have you read yet the mandate of what the new Mayor's going to do? No? Anyone want to put a hand up? Anyone, you know? I've got one, two, two hands, and there's over 100 people here of what the new Mayor wants to do. It's quite shocking, isn't it? I guess the honest truth is it's only going to last three years, this Mayor. Because of COVID, they've sort of rolled it back. He or she has lost a year already. I don't know. Sometimes, if I'm brutally honest, I think, do I get a little bit cynical? Will they actually do what they say? Well, what we are looking at in the Bible is Jesus' manifesto. And he doesn't change it every four years. He doesn't say, hey, I'm going to tell you this, and then you can all vote for me, and you'll all think I'm really cool. (laughs) He's brought out some real challenging words. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. He delivered this 2,000 years ago. People have been reading it and living by it ever since. And so we're just going to look at a few words of this. We've done two weeks on this. We're going to be doing some more afterwards. If you have a Bible, I'd love it if you turn to Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are four accounts at the start of what's known as the New Testament. Tells us about the life of Jesus. And the Sermon on the Mount, I would say the greatest sermon ever, is in the book of Matthew. There's some of it in Luke as well. But we're going to be looking at Matthew. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. The fulfillment of the law. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Tough words, isn't it? Tough words for a baptism morning. I feel I've got three things that I'd like to share. Obviously, I believe the Bible's got so much to say. We've been praying this week. What could be the words that God wants to speak to us today? The first thing I want to say is this. The Bible is true. 
The Bible is true. In an age of fake news, where we're no longer sure what's told is true or false, when, let's be honest, choice can be so paralyzing. My wife says, pick up a loaf of bread, and I'm stood in Sainsbury saying, which loaf of bread? When I was a boy, it was brown or white bread, I think it was. You know, how many different types are there? Choice is paralyzing. How many conspiracy theories are there? Is this one of them? Suddenly, everyone's a conspiracy theory, and we think, what's going on? Wikipedia. The truth is what we all say the truth is now. When I was a boy, I know I'm showing my age, Encyclopedia Britannica, you at least had an expert who knew something. Whereas now, I think, maybe we could all write a page, and then we could all adjust it, and everyone would think it was true. How do we know what really is true? Jesus is saying at this time, the Bible is true. How do I get to that? The law and the prophets is what he refers to. The the law, if you know anything about the Bible, is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The prophets, in our Bible, we talk about the major prophets, the minor prophets. I don't want to get caught up in that. There's lots of books like that. But for the Jew, we'd have also covered Joshua through to Kings. So basically, it's a shorthand term of saying, all the Old Testament, that is true. Not the smallest stroke. I, I, I do not read Hebrew, but I have read 18 books just on this passage this week. Yes. Amen or hallelujah could have come there, couldn't it? (laughs) Now I've just lost my turn of reward because I told you. (laughs) They were saying it's the least stroke, like a comma. It's almost like half a semicolon. Nothing will disappear. Not the dot on an I, not the cross on a T. He says, heaven and earth could disappear. Think about that. Mount Everest. But I'm never going to climb it. In my mind, obviously, we're all winners, aren't we? But you think it's just huge. It's colossal. I'm never going to climb it. But actually, this would go even if heaven and earth were to disappear. That's how committed he is. In fact, when he's talking to the disciples in John chapter 10, he says, Scripture cannot be set aside. If you think about the life of Jesus, when he was in the desert, he was in the desert for 40 days after he got baptized, and and he he has these terrible thoughts, and he's got these huge temptations, and he thinks, how do I grapple with this? What does he do? He quotes scripture. We know that when he's suffering and dying on a cross, there's a fulfilling of scripture. Scripture. Even the words that he cries out is a psalm. He lived by scripture. So Jesus is saying in the manifesto, scripture's true. Let me ask you the question now. What's your view of the Bible? The early church, that's those that followed after Jesus, they thought it must be true. How can I say that? Well, in 2 Timothy Chapter 3, Paul is writing, and he says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. In fact, Jesus doesn't just refer to this this Sermon on the Mount. Hopefully you think, wow, this is fascinating. We're going to be looking at it for the next few weeks. 
Jesus, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, says this, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for that sums up the law and the prophets. It's almost like what we're starting today about the law and the prophets. He goes through the Sermon on the Mount and says, actually, this is it. This is what I've been talking about. Jesus would say the Bible is true. And what's the Bible say to us today? The Bible says you're made by God. The Bible says God loves you and God wants a relationship with you. God says, so the Bible says, though, the things we think, we say, we do that are wrong, the Bible would call sin. And that just forms a barrier between us and God. It forms a barrier between us and our husband, our wife, our friends, our neighbors. And so then the Bible says, well, there must be a solution. And we're going to hear four stories after I finish speaking about how they're going to share the solution for them. So Jesus, I believe, is saying here, the Bible is scripture. The Bible is truth. Now I would like to suggest the whole Bible points to Jesus. You see, the Sermon on the Mount starts like this. Blessed are the poor. That's in the third person. Last week, Rich did a great job talking about you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. That's the second person. Now it's slipped into the first person. Jesus is saying, I say to you. And you can almost get this progression as we're getting into this sermon. Hey, it's not just out there. It's not just you. It's ultimately about Jesus Christ. You see, the danger is that sometimes we think, oh, Jesus was a good teacher. And hey, actually, I'm not sure if I do think he's a good teacher when I've read it, because there's some challenging stuff coming up. But he didn't just say, I'm a good teacher. The book of Matthew is going way beyond saying Jesus was a good teacher. He was what, what, what this book says is everything is about Jesus. Now, look, Matthew chapter 5, it wasn't written in chapters. We've put them in since. It makes it much easier for us to flick through and for us to explain. If you went to back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, you find this. All this took place, this is the birth of Jesus Christ, to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. So in the first chapter of Matthew, what, what's happening is he, he's saying, this is this Jesus, and why does it happen? It happens to fulfill what was said in the prophets. Go, oh, wow, interesting. Well, if you slip over to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15, you get exactly the same concept there. Matthew 2 and verse 15, this is when Jesus has to escape. Basically, he becomes a refugee because somebody wants to kill him. And so he flees to Egypt with his mum and dad where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Oh, wow. So Matthew's saying, hey, his birth and him fleeing as a refugee was fulfilling what the prophet said. And then you carry on in verse 17, and that what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Oh, wow. It's three times in the first two chapters. We've picked up this Jesus is fulfilling what the Old Testament said. In fact, it goes on in chapter 2 and verse 23. And he went and lived, so he came back, and his dad basically was scared because Herod's son was on the throne, and he thought, I think he still wants to kill us. So they went to live in Nazareth. 
It says, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophet, he will be called a Nazarene. And then if you jump over into into chapter 4 and verse 14, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, Jesus begins this preaching ministry. And you think, wow. Jesus understood that he was fulfilling the whole of the Old Testament. And that actually the the, the pictures and the words and, and the prophecies of the Old Testament came true in him. In fact, it tells us in the, in the Gospel of Luke, I told you there's four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In Luke, after he's, he's died, Jesus has died, and these two disciples are walking on the road, and they are mourning because Jesus has died. It says in Luke 2, verse 27, So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scripture concerning himself. How? So hang on, Jesus didn't just think, oh, I've turned up and I'm doing a manifesto. Jesus didn't just think, hey, I want to do this and elect me for three or four years. Jesus is saying, actually, the whole of history pointed to me. When he said, I fulfill the law and the prophets, it carries on in that that chapter in Luke. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was with you, to the disciples. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. We could slip into a, a whole... I've got to keep my eye on the time because I know basically you come to watch your friend's bath. <laughs> but the, the honest truth is we could spend hours now looking at this whole thing, couldn't we, of Jesus fulfilling the, the pictures. Jesus fulfilled all the principles and precepts of the Old Testament. He was the son of Abraham with that kind of persistent faith. He kept the Mosaic law. He was circumcised and he went to Jerusalem to keep the festivals. You see, Jesus fulfilled the principles of the Old Testament. He also fulfilled the program and the prophecies. We did a series on Genesis and there was this, um, uh, the serpent in Genesis 3 that was, and, and it was going to be crushed by the son of Adam. That was Jesus. He was a saviour from Judea. He was of the house of David. He's the chosen king. He's the suffering servant. He's born of a virgin. I think it's 312 prophecies fulfilled in the life of Jesus, 27 on the day of his death. Jesus fulfilled the pattern of the Old Testament, the pictures. They've become a new Adam. They've become this perfect priest that will intercede between you and God. There's this perfect Passover lamb, the final sacrifice. Look, I'm robbing you, I know. You're telling me to slow down. Jesus fulfilled the Psalms and the Proverbs, the Psalms that talked about this coming king, the Proverbs that talked about this wise man. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in London. He said, all the law and all the prophets point to him and will be fulfilled in him down to the smallest detail. The Bible is truth and the Bible points to Jesus. When these people share their stories, we're just here of the difference Jesus has made. Because I would say, and this is the final thing literally I'm going to say, Knowing Jesus leads to radical life change. You see, there should be a correlation between your heart and your deeds. Let's be honest, we know it, don't we? I say to my wife, I love you. What's she going to say? It's been day. She doesn't want to know my words, she wants to know my deeds. 
Voll ui. I learnt it in the first year and I'm still practicing it 28 years later. But the honest truth is, that's what Jesus was saying to these folk. And we can find this really scary. He was saying to them, unless your, your righteousness is better than the Pharisees. To those shocking, those there, sorry, it would have been absolutely shocking. He was saying, come on, unless your life is better than the Pharisees. But what, what do we know about the Pharisees? Well, what we know in the Old Testament, and obviously I've just skipped through the whole of the Old Testament, is that God gave several things to the Israelites, one of which was the land. But in exile, they lost the land. The other of which was the temple where he dwelt, and in exile, they lost the temple. So when they were in exile and they were away for 70 years, what became more important was the law, because God had given them the law. And so people wanted to help them to understand the law, and that's really where the Pharisees came from. The Pharisees and the scribe were those that committed to explaining the law. It's not that the Pharisees were not good. It's just that the Pharisees were not good enough. Do you know, the law had 248 commands. It had 365 prohibitions. They created 1,521 amendments just to the law. The Mishnah was written. It's 800 pages. It is a fence around the law that the Pharisees tried to keep. And then to explain the Mishnah, they wrote something called the Talmud. The one from Jerusalem has 12 printed volumes. The one from Babylon has 60 printed volumes. And that was just to explain the Mishnah that was trying to explain the law. There's a statement, for example. Do not carry a burden on the Sabbath. So the question comes back from the Pharisees, what's a burden? Food equal to the weight of a dried fig is a burden. Enough milk for one swallow is a burden. Water enough to moisten the eye is a burden. Ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet is a burden. So what they'd done is they'd gone and gone and gone and thought, I've got to be as intentional, intentional, intentional as I possibly can to try and keep this to please God. And Jesus says, hey, unless you are better than them. I mean, I cannot imagine it. I mean, these guys tithed the herbs that they got at the market. I mean, can you imagine that? Going to Nando's. Get your dinner. I think, mm, 34 chips, that's three and a half for Jesus. The rest are mine. I mean, that's almost how religious they'd become. What Jesus is really saying is it's not about you, what you do. It's not about the externals. Even today, the danger can be we suddenly look at this and think, oh, is this what makes someone a Christian? It's not externals, Jesus is saying. Let's be honest, under COVID, we've all become legalists, haven't we? I mean, what I do doesn't technically break the law, but what you do, that's horrendous. <laughs> Jesus is not saying, hey, look, you've got to think about the outside. And that was the challenge. And I think that's still the challenge now, that sometimes we think we'll approach God and we think, how do we change the outside of ourselves? I've got a slide and you can see these... Four circles. 
And so often even now, maybe of a mayor, they think, let's change society, the outer one. Jesus actually is going for the inner one. He's saying, I want to challenge your mind, which will challenge your heart, which will challenge your body, which will change society. Whereas the Pharisees were saying, hey, if we come around and we, we tell you off for not doing the right things, or we make sure you do the right things. This is what we're looking at this morning. Jesus wasn't lowering the bar for Christians. He was challenging the heart. I know there's so many things that I'd like to say, but I do want to quickly get these guys up. Disciples' righteousness is ultimately not about them. You see, what I want to say out of this passage is the Bible is true. It points to Jesus. We live radically different lives. You see, all the law could do, Ultimately, all the law could do was prove that you weren't good enough. And it proved that actually the only solution was death. Now, we believe in the Bible that actually Jesus died in our place. And because he took the punishment we deserve, we don't have to. Even in this society, nobody pays for Nando's twice. One of you pays, the other person gets to enjoy it. That's true of your sin in the Bible. You've done wrong. Jesus paid the price. But the price was death. That's really what baptism, you see, is all about. It's fulfilling the law. I grew up in a Baptist church. This is not our building. You may be surprised to know that's why it's called the University of West London. (laughs) As a Baptist church, we used to have a pool like this, and we had it dug in the floor so it was like a grave. And the idea was literally you went down the steps into the grave because you recognised that actually under the law I deserve death. And this is not me trying to die. This is me recognising that I'm united with Christ. He died for me. And so the whole thing is, and I have promised that we will bring them back up, when you take people back out of the water and, and they live again, that's what's happened here. Jesus has fulfilled the law. So that actually we can then live radically indifferent for him.